don't have enough time to sit down and read all the best Bitcoin articles? Well, let us read them for you. This is a Crypto Economy Quick Read. Talking about Bitcoin as a technology always comes with the claims of its guarantees, of, you know, its differentiators. And, you know, I've touted on many occasions about how great Bitcoin is because it has complete open access. It's resistant to censorship. Uh, it can't be counterfeited um, and even, you know, can't be seized in the normal sense. But to look at these aspects realistically, you... You have to admit that a lot of these things are really only native to the protocol, not necessarily to the real-world human interaction with that protocol. Like, how do we get access? How do we prove there's no counterfeiting? Uh, et cetera, et cetera. So that's why today we are going to read Nick Carter's recent post titled, Unpacking Bitcoin's Assurances. Exactly how open is access to the Bitcoin network? How resistant to seizure is it in normal practice? And how readily can we know that we don't have counterfeit Bitcoin in the real world? This is The Crypto Economy with Guy Swan. That is me, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anyone else you know. And today we are taking a very meticulous and uh, a little bit sobering look at what Bitcoin's assurances really are in, uh, in, a, in a really good piece by Nick Carter. We've done tons of stuff by Nick Carter in the past. Uh, I honestly could not even tell you off the top of my head how many pieces we have read, but I, I always am staying up to date. He is in a mix of probably like 10 or 20 people and places where I really just try to at least skim everything that they post. Uh, Nick Carter is always been exceptionally good at kind of breaking through or peeling away the mask, you know, the overly simplified perception that an idea tends to travel with. Um, when ideas spread, you get this overly simplified version that spreads ahead of the real information that it's essentially trying to communicate. And Nick Carter's really good at digging down just a little bit further and finding the truth underneath the mask. So uh, I will be sure to have the link to the uh, actual Medium piece, obviously, um, and to, uh, so that you can follow him on Twitter and on Medium so you can stay up to date on reading his work. Uh, because if you're not, you're just, you're just punishing yourself. And I, do not, I don't understand why you would do that. You know, we have to love ourselves and we have to treat our bodies and minds with healthy habits and good information, and that's what you'll get. Those are all the things you will receive from uh, following Nick Carter. So I will have all those links available to you uh, on the show notes page of today's quick read. All right, so without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into the piece, and then we will do some really fun commentary after we wrap this one up. All right, so let's jump into Nick Carter's Unpacking Bitcoin's Assurances. It has rightfully been pointed out that Bitcoin's decentralization is but a means to an end. Censorship resistance. 
This is in response to the decentralization fetishism that has characterized Bitcoin competitors and the blockchain industry in general. This is an appropriate response. Cosmetic network decentralization is probably not sufficient if you plan on breaking any serious rules, and irrelevant if the industry you are seeking to disrupt is dentistry. Bitcoin's fault-tolerant architecture was designed to survive extreme duress, and its multivariate decentralization was created, or more accurately emerged, to promote this. However, censorship resistance, the ability to broadcast information without restriction, does not fully cover the guarantees that Bitcoin provides to users, although it is perhaps the most significant. In this post, I will try and define the various guarantees that Bitcoin users can expect by taking advantage of the system's features over the entire usage lifecycle, from acquisition to exit. Censorship resistance is central to these, but not sufficiently comprehensive. I call these assurances, although they aren't perfectly assured since things go wrong in the real world. I've been a fan of assurances in this context since reading this post. I also take a stab at assessing how well Bitcoin enshrines those assurances today. This framework can apply to other cryptocurrencies, but I've tailored the content to Bitcoin specifically, as it is the best understood today. Just a note, the article that he links to is actually another one by Permable Nino, which is, uh, the Twitter tag is, I'ma call you Jody, but that's the one that, uh, the first piece we read by uh, him was actually on, uh, was, uh, what was the title? Bitcoin and Accounting Revolution, and it was talking about the triple entry accounting system and the evolution of accounting assurances and stuff over time. Uh, that's not the one he actually linked to, uh, but uh, that's the one of permables that we have read on the show. And I definitely recommend checking out uh, some of their work as well as the one that Nick Carter mentions here uh, and links to in this post. Open access. This is the shorthand for, quote, the right to freely acquire Bitcoin. No amount of decentralization in Bitcoin's architecture itself can guarantee this. As many Bitcoiners will point out, Free access to the asset requires a vibrant and competitive industry of fiat on-ramps. The existence of quasi-monopolists attempting to build regulatory moats in order to raise barriers to entry threatens this. If acquisition of the asset can only occur in a couple large venues, they are not only susceptible to state action, but also liable to collusively deplatform individuals at will. Imagine what happens to the Venezuelan equivalent of Coinbase during a currency crisis. The government trivially shuts it down to preserve its monetary monopoly. Thus, while large regulator-friendly conventional exchanges are good on-ramps in the developed world, where cryptocurrencies are not yet a threat to local sovereign currencies, they aren't a good fit for states experiencing demonetization or high inflation, which is where access is most impactful. Centralized exchanges must be supplemented by peer-to-peer -peer exchanges, like local bitcoins, hodl-hodl, 
Paxful, and indeed, they are the venues where trading seems to occur. Venezuelan traders are doing $300 million annualized on local bitcoins. Nigeria, around $170 million. Russia, close to a billion U.S. dollars. Wallets, which allow for trust-minimized trading, like open dimes, are vital here. Receiving an open dime where you can be sure your counterparty doesn't know the private key beats waiting an hour for six confirmations. Lastly, paper voucher systems enabling users to acquire smaller quantities of Bitcoin at street kiosks or from corner shops are an important piece of the puzzle. Vouchers work by exchanging fiat for a receipt with a code on it. Settlement can be done later. I have a vision of safaris in the streets of Tehran and Kabul hawking Bitcoin vouchers. Small-scale entrepreneurial activity is much more robust to government activity than larger exchanges in a demonetization event. Fast Bitcoins and Azteco are two startups advancing this use case. I expect many others to join them. Peer-to-peer exchanges like HODL-HODL rely on a crucial and unheralded technology. Bitcoin's native multi-signature or multi-sig capability. A simple, well-understood, trusted, and widely used multi-sig implementation enables massive secondary benefits. In the case of HODL HODL, it allows buyers and sellers to transact with a high degree of confidence that they will not be cheated. In a two-of-three multi-sig contract, the seller and buyer must both sign the release transaction. And if one disagrees, it is referred to the arbitrator for a decision. In practice, the vast majority of transactions settle without arbitration. The threat of mediation itself enforces good behavior. Multisig is popular in Bitcoin today. About 1.65 million Bitcoin, or around $6 billion, are held in known multisig wallets. This figure climbs to 3.9 million Bitcoin, or about $14 billion, if we make a naive extrapolation about the ratio of multisig to non-multisig in unspent pay-to-script hash scripts. To sum up, open access to Bitcoin is a core component of the system. What use is the asset if you can't easily obtain it? Yet it is somewhat overlooked. It's important to be realistic about this. Bitcoin suffers from a paradox whereby individuals in countries with relatively less need for Bitcoin have frictionless access to it, while individuals dealing with hyperinflation have to reckon with a less developed on-ramp infrastructure. There is much work to be done here. Seizure resistance. One of the chief motivations for this article was to differentiate the unencumbered broadcast rights that Bitcoin grants users from the strong guarantees it grants to users when it is at rest. As mentioned above, censorship occurs at the time of broadcast, so censorship resistance doesn't quite describe Bitcoin's unique properties when idle. Thus, the inclusion of seizure resistance This is also sometimes referred to as tamper resistance or judgment resistance. By this, I mean the ability of users to retain access to their Bitcoin under duress during times of upheaval or displacement, all in a peaceful and covert way. 
As Hasu and Suzu have eloquently written, Bitcoin can be understood as an independent institution which provides users property rights which are untethered from the state or the legal system. As virtually all property rights trace back to the state, the legal system, or some local monopoly on violence, Bitcoin's cryptography-based property rights are a genuinely new paradigm. This has been covered at length, but the fact that individuals can store their wealth in a 12- or 16-word passphrase held in their memory is quite astounding. While that's not the most failure-resistant way to operate, it makes one's wealth extremely portable and concealable. Multisig also comes into play here. Innovative custody companies like CASA, disclaimer, Castle Island is an investor, rely on a three-of-five multi-signature setup whereby the user controls four keys physically dispersed and CASA holds one for disaster recovery. This makes physical attacks on Bitcoin holders much more difficult and expensive, while preserving convenience and resilience to faults. Seedless recovery is possible if a hardware wallet is lost. The secure key sharding that Bitcoin offers fundamentally reinvents what it means to be a custodian and opens the door for all kinds of innovative hybrid models which offer various resilience and autonomy trade-offs. Censorship Resistance This is the most celebrated assurance attributed to Bitcoin, so I'll be brief. At its core, Bitcoin allows permissionless broadcast through the peer-to-peer -peer gossip protocol and the minor fee incentive. Anyone can make a transaction, although they have to sufficiently compensate a miner to include it in a block. If there's a lot of traffic, this could entail a delay or a higher fee. The other required component here is a well-connected network of nodes available to route transactions. If full nodes were to become very expensive and difficult to run, full node counts might decline, making broadcast more difficult. That said, node counts would have to drop precipitously to impair network performance, so this isn't an immediate concern. One realistic impairment to censorship resistance is the simple approach of simply shutting off local access to the internet. While Bitcoin's global infrastructure cannot be realistically held back by even the most motivated state actor, a state under severe monetary duress, experiencing a demonetization event, for instance, might take the extreme step of temporarily restricting access to Bitcoin by shutting off the internet. In recent memory, governments in Iran, Turkey, and Russia have shown themselves willing to exert massive collateral damage on local internet access to target services like Telegram and Wikipedia. Places like China, where the internet and Bitcoin usage are already tightly regulated, would be well positioned to impose such restrictions. It's not inconceivable that a state could attempt to target Bitcoin in such a manner. Touted mitigations to state censorship of Bitcoin's broadcast layer include Nick Zabo's long-range radio proposal, as well as Samurai and Gotenna's SMS and short-range radio mesh proofs of concept. These initiatives, however, are still either in the R&D phase or the very earliest phases of deployment. At present, individuals in internet-restricted locations have little recourse when faced with such an attack, aside from 
physically getting their funds out of the country in a hardware or paper wallet. This doesn't, in my opinion, represent a threat to the network itself. It would take an unbelievable amount of international cooperation among states to regulate Bitcoin in this manner. Network denial-of-service attacks through fee spam are also an effective, if costly, way to make it more difficult for everyday users to broadcast transactions. There are few mitigations for this aside from waiting out the attacker or outbidding them. Counterfeit resistance. This is a crucial quality of the system, and yet it doesn't quite get the rhetorical exposure that censorship resistance does. Counterfeit resistance is simply the idea that individuals who use Bitcoin have very cheap access to the tools required to verify that payments they are receiving are legitimate, that their savings have not been debased through inflation, and that their counterparties aren't cheating them in some way. Comparing Bitcoin to gold, the ability to run a full node is akin to owning a professional-grade XRF spectrometer to check the integrity of your bullion. Compared to the expensive and tricky tests to verify gold's authenticity, verifying the integrity of one's Bitcoin is a breeze. Running a node costs a few dollars a year and can be done on consumer hardware and bandwidth with little difficulty. This very accessible counterfeit resistance only persists as long as running a node is relatively cheap. A significant increase in the bandwidth, computation, or memory required to run a fully validating node would hinder it significantly. Right now, Bitcoin is growing at a stable rate, and physical plug-and-play node hardware has made full nodes more accessible than ever, so this assurance seems safer now. For individuals and enterprises that don't want to run nodes directly, a good diversity of managed node software exists. The other side of counterfeit resistance is the ability to determine that all units that exist were created according to a predefined, predictable schedule. The proof-of-work minting function plus the difficulty adjustment takes care of this. Well, close enough. Naively assuming that blocks were meant to arrive every 10 minutes on average, Bitcoin is actually slightly ahead of schedule by 30,000 blocks or so. This is because hash power has generally increased over time, and this caused block arrival to outpace the defined schedule due to the coarse granularity in the difficulty adjustment. Aside from this interesting emergent property, Bitcoin's proof of work has never been compromised, nor has the hash function been broken. And this doesn't seem imminently likely in the foreseeable future. Verifying that the correct number of units exist is as simple as running the getTXOutsetInfo command in your Bitcoin Core node. The inherent auditability of Bitcoin and all of its derivatives is what makes deceptions like the Bitcoin private covert inflation scandal easy to spot. At present, Bitcoin's counterfeit resistance is made possible by a deliberate design philosophy from the core developers that prides accessibility and user self-sovereignty at all costs. It is augmented by a network of Bitcoin businesses that provide hardware nodes or managed access to node software. However, if the chain's growth were to radically accelerate, consumer-grade counterfeit resistance would be significantly impaired. Free Exit 
Free exit, the ability to sell Bitcoin unencumbered, is another aspect of the system that is sometimes overlooked. It's not strictly a Bitcoin guarantee, but Bitcoin's usefulness is significantly downgraded in its absence. The real-world consequences of overzealous chain analysis companies, whose heuristics implicate innocent users through false positives, make themselves felt when those users attempt to sell their Bitcoin for fiat. Since fiat off-ramps are the most easily regulated and are run by risk-averse institutions, they are a natural target for entities that create blacklists and ascribe taint to individual UTXOs. There are a few strategies to reckon with this. One is to obfuscate the origin of funds through collaborative tumblers like the Wasabi Wallet. Another approach is to reverse engineer the heuristics that chain analysis firms use and develop mixing strategies that implicate everyone in taint, thus rendering those heuristics incoherent, or that avoid detection altogether through specialized transaction types. This is the general approach of the folks behind the Samurai Wallet. Routing around the centralized, highly regulated exchanges is another option, either on the peer-to-peer marketplaces or by exchanging Bitcoin for goods and services, rather than for fiat. Ultimately, I expect that a tranche of gray or black market Bitcoins will emerge, with coins available at a discount in exchange for their reduced access to capital markets. This will not be a death knell, there will likely be more than enough demand globally for slightly cheaper Bitcoins, even if they cannot be traded on Coinbase. The world is a big place, with a variety of regulatory regimes, and individuals fleeing hyperinflation may not be too bothered by the fact that the Bitcoins they acquired cannot be deposited on U.S.-regulated exchanges. The objective for this piece was to present a framework of the major assurances that Bitcoin provides to users and make it clear that censorship resistance is only one of them. Additionally, I wanted to make the point that Bitcoin, the software, is only one part of a much vaster system, a collaborative social and industrial project aiming to provide unencumbered financial tools to individuals the world over. Entrepreneurs that have created hardware wallets, merchant services, novel exchanges, voucher systems, Bitcoin contract structuring, and hybrid custody models have all done their bit to advance user sovereignty and discretion when it comes to their personal wealth. They deserve to be recognized, as does the broader struggle to make these touted assurances a reality. And that will wrap up our awesome piece, Unpacking Bitcoin's Assurances, by Nick Carter. But before we get into expanding on this a little bit, um, I'm going to take a break and get out from my Bitcoin blankie fort, and we will come back after we hit our sponsor. All right, so let's talk about this one a little bit. Um, uh, this was just a really great breakdown um, of well, the assurances of uh, Bitcoin and the Bitcoin system. One of the uh, important distinctions that he makes in this piece um, that I think uh, is really important to consider, like, like you need to keep in mind, is, is the degree of access. Is that like Bitcoin, the network, when we talk about like Bitcoin is an open system that anyone can use and it's permissionless and all this stuff, that means that you can, like I can freely go online and download the software and 
spin up a node and have a wallet, but that doesn't mean that I can get Bitcoin. And obviously to make use of and get the benefit of the Bitcoin system, I have to actually have Bitcoin. And the acquisition of Bitcoin is an incredibly difficult task to go from fiat to Bitcoin because um, fiat is such a highly regulated and uh, difficult to it's also a reversible payment option. So because of that, you typically have higher costs as well. Um, and uh, just like he says in the article, uh, that you know the places where it is most critical that you would have uh, access to Bitcoin, where Bitcoin could actually have the most impact and difference, places like Venezuela during currency collapse. But because Bitcoin poses such a threat or undermines the currency controls that those governments will inevitably uh, enforce in an effort to strengthen, in, a, in an effort to save their own purchasing power uh, that they will enforce onto their citizens, access and infrastructure in those countries uh, will easily be squeezed. They will, they will be attacked or uh, regulated or shut down in such a way as to restrict any access or market to actually acquiring or exchanging Bitcoin, which is why the peer-to-peer -peer markets, I think, are so important. And uh, it, it's, it's one of those things that that's a huge part of the crypto economy in my mind is decentralized um, markets and infrastructure, like peer-to-peer -peer markets. And that's one of those things that really hasn't kind of caught the wave yet. Um, I'm really hoping in the coming years that we'll see an explosion in peer-to-peer -peer markets. And, uh, and we kind of are seeing it, but still with those centralized institutions that um, like kind of as overseers. Uber is a decent example. Uh, uh, Airbnb is a good example, is that there are these companies that can still be choked. There are still these points of failure, but we're starting to see the decentralization of these markets as kind of the technology becomes ubiquitous enough and the access to something as simple as an app makes the difference in a huge gap in uh, the availability of the markets or the supply available to the markets. That's one of the interesting things about Uber is that uh, Uber isn't simply taking some of the market share of the taxis, which it is. But if you actually look at the, um, like the market cap and the entire market for ride sharing and taxi services, um, it's way, way bigger than it was before Uber existed. What Uber found was huge untapped amounts of de demand. And that's kind of what I think the peer-to-peer -peer markets need. They need to find where they can meet demand for something that just isn't being met somewhere else. And it needs to be focused on that, in my opinion. Uh, but um, I don't know. That's a, that's a slightly different conversation, but um, it's still really important. I mean, it's highly pertinent to the crypto economy. And um, it's important for the, um, the open access for Bitcoin. You need to be able to get Bitcoin easily. And one thing that I actually have not done, but I've heard... Uh, I've heard is actually really easy and 
fast, <laughs> ironic, um, are fast Bitcoins and Azteco. And I don't know if there's anyone else. Those are the only two that I knew off the top of my head, and they were what Nick Carter mentioned in the article. But the whole Bitcoin voucher system uh, is really interesting, and I'm curious. I really want to know a little bit more about that whole idea um, for acquiring Bitcoin and what degree of you know, KYC, like how does it exactly get around the the Bitcoin exchange problem. So, I know that's something that I'm really uh, unclear about, but I've heard good things. Um, local bitcoins, I've all the all the decentral the peer to peer exchanges like local bitcoins, hold uh, holdo and Paxful. Um, they are great services, but I feel like they're they're not really that much more difficult to uh, choke as centralized points of failure in the market. I kind of think of those more as the Ubers, I guess, really is probably the better analogy is hold a hold of local Bitcoins and Paxful, Paxful is kind of Uber or the Craigslist of, you know, buying and selling Bitcoin, uh, which makes them really interesting. And I think they're a really important part of the market. But as we saw with local Bitcoins, KYC, AML stuff recently, and them basically removing the ability to do cash in-person exchanges, uh, it's pretty clear that at least in certain jurisdictions that, you know, they're going to have to bend to what the government wants them to do. Uh, but it's kind of interesting with like local Bitcoins and stuff is that places like Venezuela are still doing massive amounts of trades. Um, and uh, I'd be curious to see if that actually keeps up, because it seems odd that, you know, the Venezuelan government is not doing, uh, or at least is not working too terribly hard to actually stomp that out. Um, so it'd be curious to see what or what they did or what they actually can do to stop something like local Bitcoins in their country. All right, so let's jump into seizure resistance, because... Uh, this, because of the nature, like the nature of Bitcoin's independence um, and the fact that I love that Nick mentioned the one article that I constantly mention on this show. I don't I probably brought it up like 20 other times since we actually read it. Um, but the one by Hasu and Suzu about Bitcoin as in, an independent property system. And I love this quote and highlighted it uh, in the uh, actual article. It says, as virtually all property rights trace back to the state, the legal system, or some local monopoly on violence, Bitcoin's cryptography-based property rights are a genuinely new paradigm. And the fact that ownership is completely, is completely irrelevant to that other information, um, or to those other systems, I mean, is... It's truly fascinating. It is one of the most fascinating aspects of the Bitcoin system, in my opinion. And without the keys, that ownership cannot be contested by anyone. So it ends up sort of behaving like a like something in the physical world being a bearer instrument, that as long as you have it, uh, you're the one that's in control of it, uh, but one that you can make invisible. If you memorize your seed words, um, you know, there's no, there's, no, there's no physical scanning or anything that can uh, 
tell that you're carrying around, you know, potentially millions or even billions of dollars. Um, and that's absolutely insane when you think about uh, history, when you think about like major events, currency crises, wars, um, you know, Germany, World War II, like the Soviet Union, um, Mao's Great Leap Forward. When you think about these horrible catastrophes in history, and then you think about someone having the ability to acquire, to openly acquire value that's external to that, those giant institutions that everyone is completely subservient to um, and that have become totalitarian and uh, essentially sought to destroy everything else at their own benefit, um, that the ability to acquire value completely disconnected from all of that and to be able to move it without with needing nothing at all to memorize literally the key to the value and leave the country to completely exit with all of your ownership intact and to have that power cheaply and in a broadly accessible way none of history would have played out like it did the barriers to all of the terrible things that have happened throughout history are immediately so much shorter, so much easier to break through. That they're still there, obviously. There's still violence, there's still, you know, regulation, there's still governments controlling their people. Like it's not gone. But it is a new player in the game that forces us to reevaluate what we will think what we think will happen in the next disaster or crisis or currency crisis or something like that. And unfortunately for a lot of us, we may not be very far away from seeing a enormous currency crisis and economic collapse that may very well reveal to us exactly what role Bitcoin will be playing uh, in an event like that. So I, for one, am very happy about its seizure-resistant uh, characteristics. All right, and censorship resistance is really kind of the culmination of a lot of these, like, together. And uh, I really don't, that's one thing that Bitcoin really does have, um, that when a transaction is broadcast, there really isn't much that you can do. Again, he mentions, like, a fee spam attack, um, where you just spam the entire chain and make it difficult to transact. It's like, yeah, but, you know, your transaction basically sits in the mempool and, you know, you can rebroadcast later. It, it puts in a time delay, but it doesn't alter the fact that your transaction itself is censorship resistant, that, that it's still going to be treated like any other transaction in the system. And now you just have to outcompete someone who you, you outcompete or outweight uh, an attacker who is willing to expend a ton of resources just for the sole purpose of making you wait. Um, so that is something, but I don't think it affects... I don't know if I would call it the ability to censor someone speaking if they just prevented you from getting your message out for like a couple of hours. You know what I mean? Like, like I would consider that a hindrance and uh, imposing an 
uh, unethical cost, like one that doesn't actually exist. But when you think about it, you know, like uh, it's really more setting back in technology, not setting back in the capability. Like, like, you know, 40 years ago to get a message to somebody, I would have had to take longer. You know, I might have had to write it in a letter and send it through the mail. Um, so uh, that doesn't mean that I can't send someone a message. That doesn't mean my freedom of speech is actually being censored. Censored is to not be able to get your message out. But if after, you know, three hours, they've spent like a ton of money trying to prevent your message from getting out and it still gets out anyway, it basically means they can't do anything about it. Um, they just, uh, all they can do is make it so that it doesn't happen on your schedule. And uh, the really big one, the only one that really has any significance, I think, is shutting off the internet um, or maybe having some uh, restricted access. Maybe they could, you know, shut down uh, a communication on all like Bitcoin and Lightning ports, like through a network, like on, like using ISPs and stuff like that. Maybe they could. There's a number of different routes that they could take, uh, but a lot of it could be routed around. Um, pretty easily, and that's one of the most that's one of the powerful aspects of a system like Blockstream and stuff. To have these things, in, like, you know, have satellites that we can piggyback off of. To have the Gotenna and Samurai uh, thing, where you can short range radio uh, mesh nets and you know broadcast out from your little Gotenna a transaction, and any of these other like alternative methods to leak through and to use Tor, you know. Um, uh, Tor is a great way to get around, uh, you know, firewalls or, you know, government internet controls without them being able to see or exactly figure out where that leak is. Um, and, you know, cross-border, like, radio wave and, you know, like, extended, like, long-distance Wi-Fi. People are doing those across, uh, like, you know, the Chinese border and stuff. Uh, so there's so many of these other technologies. But again, like, like you said, these are very early stages like none of these have a really robust um uh, infrastructure as an alternative so if somebody if a government cracked down and tried to literally just shut down the internet in an effort to stop or prevent access to bitcoin they could largely do it um uh, for the most part uh, the only one that they probably couldn't do much about is uh the blockstream satellite because it's accessible everywhere and um, isn't something that they can immediately shut down. You know, it's not exactly in their jurisdiction. Not to mention they, they're running constantly. They're just out there, like, in space. Um, so I, I, th I see that as actually, like, a really big player that is always available. And obviously it is a bit more widely distributed as far as access to something like that than uh, radio mesh, and, you know, towers and stuff like that. But I would really like to see, uh, I, I really appreciate development in this, this sort um, because it's not something, it's definitely a very much long time frame, uh, uh, worst case scenario sort of infrastructure planning. And, but I think it's really, really important that we do this with Bitcoin. I think that's one of the... Um, one of the key things that makes the Bitcoin like development and perspective, I guess you could say, like the how we're build, building this thing out that I think makes it such a powerful tool, makes it so resistant to these problems that all of these other alternatives will 
obviously crumble in front of. You know, we keep the blocks tiny. We keep the blocks small, as small as we can manage um, uh, without hindering the actual operation of the network to make sure that it can get through Tor, that we can send this thing through space, that we can hop and sneak through the cracks on every border on the planet so Bitcoin remains globally accessible. The problem with it is, in my opinion, is just that because it's a scenario that's typically not happening, I mean, obviously it depends on, you know, what country you're in, but like in the U.S., for example, you know, I, I, my internet connection works fine. I can send Bitcoin transactions. I don't need a Gotenna to broadcast transactions, but I feel like it's still incredibly important to do the research and development and to build those alternative tools. And honestly, I feel like I want to have one uh, in my back pocket ready to go in case the time comes or the need arises. Because, you know, it's like insurance. It doesn't do you any good if you buy insurance when the hurricane is here. Uh, so, but luckily, um, luckily censorship resistance, I think, is one of those things that as far as broadcasting a transaction, having it included in the block and being able to treat it like any other Bitcoin, I think is uh, one of those assurances that Bitcoin provides amazingly well. Um, there are always drawbacks and there are always certain limitations, but uh, that is one thing that I feel like just no questions, that's what Bitcoin does. All right, so let's move on to uh, counterfeit resistance because this one's one of my favorites. Um, and it's funny that keeping like the block size small and keeping the network and the data, the bandwidth, uh, everything needed to run a node is not only so important for censorship resistance and maintaining consensus across adversarial borders or jurisdictions, um, not only is it important for that, but it's also critically important for the ability to assay your Bitcoin, to prove that it is real Bitcoin. And I, I love this. Um, I have not highlighted this. I need, I need to do this. Um, so comparing Bitcoin to gold, the ability to run a full node is akin to owning a professional-grade XRF spectrometer to check the integrity of your bullion. And I would say that is only partly accurate because yes, your ability to, you have the ability to far more quickly than it would take an XRF spectrometer likely um, check the integrity of your Bitcoin, but you can do it all in one batch. So if you have a lot of gold bars, you have to do each gold bar. And with, uh, with a Bitcoin node, you're validating all of your Bitcoin, you can check everything very quickly and very easily. But more importantly, is that you can verify you have that exact same level of professional grade XRF spectrometer uh, integrity check on every Bitcoin that exists. The entire market, the entire production schedule, all of it. Like it's the equivalent of being able to literally check every single gold coin that exists when you turn on your spectrometer just to check on your gold coins. You also know that nobody else has produced them randomly or found some reserve elsewhere in the world that's going to devalue your gold. I mean, that's insane. It's orders of magnitude more uh, perfect in its validity and integrity check 
than anything that gold or any other almost sound money out there can provide. And that's just absolutely fascinating is all you have to do is run a node and that's it. You can know. So honestly, if you aren't running your own node at this point, you shouldn't miss out. You're doing, you are, you're the only person in the world. You're the, you're the first people in the world to ever have this amount of control sovereignty and power over what money you use never before you're at you're you're leaving the most incredible thing on the table by not running a node and i i honestly get that the tools aren't quite there to make the best use of it but i think it's on the i think they're on the way um there are a lot of people building a lot of incredible stuff um something like the nodal and then the casa node these things are going to be uh, small personal platforms to host tons of different services and apps and things off of where where you are actually providing your own service. You're your own service provider for all of this all of this different software. Um, you're not giving your information to anyone. You're entirely in control of uh, every financial tool you can make use of. And that node, that node is what's giving you the entire control. The entire the privacy it, it grants you privacy if you're running a full node and just asking that node um, for all your address and you know balances and uh, transaction details and everything you're giving that information to no one else you look you've requested every ounce of data from the network so nobody has a clue what data you actually care about you you've asked for every bit of it um, I don't know it's just such a powerful notion. Um, to run your own node and what it means that you're validating your own keys, your own coins, and all of the entire rest of the financial system built on top of uh, where, where Bitcoin is the base layer. What it means to be running a fully validating node, to not do it and be a part of Bitcoin, uh, just feels like not reading a book in the age of the printing press you know it just feels like you're leaving one of the one of the most incredible power shift dynamics uh in history just sitting on the table and not not playing with it so uh, i don't know that's my little bit on why you should run a node um even if you don't get a lot of personal use out of it yet but again um recommending the nodal and the casa node uh, if you want to start playing around with it, because the amount of stuff that you can do with those nodes now, and I think it will definitely get to the point where we will have our own nodes in our house and we will have access and benefits from lots of different apps and lots of different things that you just can't do anywhere else. It cannot be provided with other services, and I'm really excited about that. That's the, that's the future I am uh, crossing my fingers for. All right. Uh, we're done. We're done. I just love this piece. I uh, thought it was a great one. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. Again, do not forget to follow Nick Carter. And just a heads up, if you're trying to do that from memory, the Twitter tag is actually Nick double underscore Carter. So it's N-I-C uh, underscore underscore C-A-R-T-E-R on Twitter. But again, obviously I'll have the links to the article so that you can drop some applause and follow him on Medium. And then uh, 
to his Twitter page so that you can follow him up there as well and not miss any of the new articles that they post from Castle Island Ventures and Coinmetrics. So much good stuff. So don't miss it. All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, And we've actually got a lot of new listeners in the last week or two. So welcome to all the new members of our Crypto Economy crew. There is an ocean of past episodes to explore on this show. So I think I'm creeping up on 350 episodes pretty soon, if I'm not mistaken. And, you know, I've got another one of these out every day, so it won't take long to get there. Uh, If you want to learn everything there is to know about Bitcoin and the new uh, global decentralized economy that is being built, this is the place to be. This is the crypto economy with Guy Swan. You'll get to learn from all of the most interesting and brilliant authors in this space. And you'll get to hear the added commentary from the guy who's read more about Bitcoin than anybody else. That is me. What do you know? I happen to be that guy. I love you guys. Uh, Thank you so much for listening, and I will catch you tomorrow. Until then, take it easy, guys.